calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at exchangeetf.com. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be the one and only Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify. And simply put, I can't wait for this because we are going to discuss some of the surprising successes and failures in the world of ETFs this year. And I would say it's been an interesting year, to, to say the least. I mean, you look at inflows overall, they've been fairly muted given the market performance. But at the same time, we are on pace for a record number of uh, new ETF launches, some of which have already been highly successful. And then if you start drilling down a bit further, there have actually been monster flows into underperforming ETFs like TLT and JEPI, but then hardly any flows into the best performing ETFs, which are the blockchain or crypto equity ETFs. There's just been a lot going on this year. That's not necessarily uh, intuitive or straightforward. And so Dave and I will tell you what has stood out to us in 2023. And the reason I can't wait for this is because I have absolutely no idea what Dave is bringing to the uh, table here and vice versa. He has no idea what I'm bringing. So this should be a lot of fun, or I guess it could be a, a big disaster. We'll see. And then I also have a couple of other ETF stories I want to touch on, including uh, this Hashdex Bitcoin ETF filing, which I think is pretty unique, but some people think this filing is a little too late. So we'll get into that as well. Now, also joining me will be Tony Bancroft, Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst at Gabelli Funds. And I'm just telling you now, you are 100% going to love hearing from Tony so he is the portfolio manager on the Gabelli Commercial Aerospace and Defense ETF, ticker GCAD. But listen to this. He previously served in the United States Marine Corps as an F-A-18 Hornet fighter pilot. That's right. I said an F-A-18 Hornet fighter pilot. 
And you talk about someone who brings a unique perspective to investing in aerospace and defense. I mean, that should be pretty obvious here. And so we're going to talk about his experience as a pilot. We'll obviously spotlight GCAD and how it compares to some other ETFs on the market. And then we'll get into the uh, potential investment drivers in this segment, including the uh, geopolitical backdrop with everything going on in the Middle East right now. Again, I, I think you'll really enjoy hearing from Tony. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Dave Nottig. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, so great having you back on the uh, podcast. Thank you for joining me. I uh, couldn't couldn't wait to be here. I've got a lot to talk about. I, yeah, I, I have been looking forward to this. So obviously, we're going to discuss some of the surprising successes and failures in uh, ETFs this year. And for listeners, what we decided to do here is Dave has a few, and then I have a few. But it, it, again, as I mentioned, we have no idea what the other one has. And so this should be pretty interesting. And there are no ground rules here either in that the ETF or ETFs did not have to launch this year or anything like that. This is really just... Uh, ETFs that surprised us this year, either in a good way or bad way. So, Dave, let's start with the uh, good. And probably the best way to do this is, why don't we go through your list first? Uh, we, we each have three. So why don't you give me your three? We can bat those around. I'll give you my three, and, and then we'll just go from there. So uh, surpri- well, I, surprise me. I, I, I think you're going to not be happy with my choices because, honestly, what I'm talking about mostly are classes of launches that I think are really interesting, not necessarily stuff that pulled in a ton of money, because honestly, most of the stuff that's pulled in a ton of money, I think we both would have guessed would have pulled in a ton of money, right? Whether it's energy ETFs or, uh, you know, all of the Jeppy clones, there's a lot going on. But to me, I think one of the biggest surprises has been just the absolute tidal wave of actively managed equity product. Um, I mean, if you think about it, we had uh, JP Morgan's Jeppy, which y'all have talked about a million times, right? One of the great success stories in active management. But that has now spawned three copycat products, Bally, GPIX, and Pappy from uh, from BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, and uh, uh, I'm blanking, Morgan Stanley. Uh, and we've also got Morgan Stanley Cap Group and Calamos launching tons of new product. Uh, I've I've just been shocked at the absolute unending cavalcade of new product launches from traditional active managers. And not all of them are getting assets. Some of them are sort of languishing at the $5 million level, but a lot of them are getting $50, $100 million. I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that class, Nate, or do you want me to go through my whole list first? No, actually, I do want to comment on that. One of the narratives I've seen out there on active equity products here over the past week or two, and I think Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas wrote a piece on this, is whether these are actually really active products like traditional stock picking products, because if you look at where the success has been, it has been in a lot of the more quantitatively driven strategies where there are maybe slight tweaks to the underlying indices. So I think of somebody like Dimensional, where obviously they're, they're taking 
some uh, factor tilts in the small cap space and value space, but it's not what you think of in terms of traditional stock picking. And I, I, I guess I'd throw it back your way. I'd be curious what you think on that. I mean, is it really, is there a path for that traditional stock picking uh, active management, or is it going to be more what we have seen from somebody like Dimensional in Avantis? And you could probably even toss some of the, uh, the, the JP Morgan products in there. I, I don't think that the fundamental reality of markets has changed as much as some people are talking about. I think it's still very, very difficult, if not impossible, to consistently beat the market, pick in a portfolio of, call it, 50 stocks from the U.S. equity market uh, with the constraints of having to run it as an ETF, meaning you're pretty much not going to go below the largest small caps because you won't be able to get the liquidity you need. Uh, I think that's just an incredibly difficult nut to crack. And we've, like, some of my failures your list here has some of the folks that have have jumped into there. I'll I'll toss LZRD. You remember that one, Nate Lizard, which was a straight up small portfolio active stock picking fund from Parabola, uh, which opened in April and closed in October, right? Which is one of the fastest round trips we've ever seen. Definitely never had a chance to to, to work. Um, but I'd point out that the long Jim Cramer ETF, which, you know, if you want to talk about active management, I suppose that's probably about as active as it gets. You have to watch TV every night to find out where your trades are going to be. Uh, that thing closed too, leaving sort of the butt end of S Jim, Slim Jim, the short version of it still alive. Uh, but I think the straight up active stock picking world is very difficult to crack. I think we're going to see more systematic product, more product that uses uh, derivatives to get their exposures uh, and doing things that, frankly, the average investor can't do on their own. Okay. So actively managed equity products, that's one of your surprising successes. Give me the other two here. Um, I, 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 there's a class of products that launched that again, cannot believe launched, which is Lux KLXY and LUXX, three competing ultra luxury brand ETFs from Tima, Crane and Roundhill respectively. None of them have pulled in significant money. I think the oldest one of these launched in March and they sort of dribbled out through the course of the year. Um, I, I sort of don't quite understand why these products came to market. We had a product that closed two years ago called Lux, L-U-X-E, uh, which dramatically underperformed. The S&P Global Lux Index, which is you know effectively the pool these folks are all fishing out of, has underperformed the S&P 500 effectively forever. So I'm, the, the case for these products coming to market right now is some sort of belief in, I don't know, late stage capitalist barbelling? I can't figure out the model. Have you played around with these products much? Have you dug under the hood here, Nate? No, I haven't. And just to be clear, so you would put these obviously in in the failure category. They they're successes in the sense that they came to market. Um, to I you know I use the framing of what were my biggest surprises this year. I was very surprised to see these three products launch from three great issuers that uh, you would expect to be launching product that was going to have a real bid on the market and doesn't seem to yet. I just think with any ETF issuer out there, and I'm going to offer some free advice, some unsolicited advice. I think before you launch any product, the first question you should ask yourself is whether or not the financial advisor community would actually allocate to it. Do they want this showing up on a client statement? Is it realistic? And that's not to say that, and, and, and I'll tell you, I have, uh, with my, my failures this year, I have a couple that will fit into this category where I do think they're targeted at retail investors. So that's not to say an issuer can't find success targeting retail. But I think if you really want to have the best path, 
you should ask yourself whether financial advisors are going to allocate to the segment. And not that there's no advisor out there that will ever allocate to a luxury uh, thematic ETF. It's just it feels so narrow. Uh, and I, I just think it, it's it's going to be difficult for any ETF like that to have success, because even if the category does really well, it's not something that cuts across multiple um parts of the economy or different sectors. So like I think about artificial intelligence or robotics, you can see how that will impact a wide swath of the economy or different sectors. Whereas if the luxury segment does well, well, well great. Uh, again, you might get some great returns there, but it just doesn't, it, it just feels like such a difficult play, such a niche play. So that that's, I, I don't know if that makes sense. That's my issue when I look at ETFs like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, look, thematic ETFs have a place. Absolutely. And I understand that folks want to be able to, to, you know, chase headlines and express those opinions. And certainly if there's some sort of amazing run in, you know, LVMH and, uh, you know, other luxury brands, I suppose these funds will all capture some of that move. I just found it to be surprising given uh, that, you know, the average economist still thinks we're heading into a recession, which is generally not the best time to be leaning in on Bentleys. Yeah, good point. Okay. Any other successes that you would highlight? And then I'll, I'll give you mine that I, I pulled up here. I, I would just go, uh, th- this is slightly old school and fewer, it, not so much about launches, um, but I think the surprising strength of things like RSP, the equal weight ETF, which has continued to pull in money all year long, um, or or even things like BKLN. These are older products that bank loans. Um, these are older products that have been on the street for a while that are a little bit nichier, and they've all been able to catch a bid this year. To me, that means advisors are being smart in thinking about their allocations. To your point, Nate, uh, if you can't figure out why an advisor is going to allocate a core, a core piece of a model portfolio to this, you probably shouldn't be in it. Yeah, and RSP, by the way, turned 20 years old this year, to, to yep. your point about these having been around for a while. Okay, I, I, I'm really excited. I want to give you my three. Now, the first one, <laughs> I, I think you're going to be disappointed. You said I might be disappointed in yours. I think you're going to be disappointed in mine because you've already touched on it, but just bear with me on this. So the, the first is JEPI, the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income yeah. ETF. But, but before you laugh... This is a surprise to me because I thought that this was really more of a 2022 story. But if you look, and and I alluded to this at the top, it's taken in nearly $13 billion this year, even though it's underperformed the S&P 500 by, by, listen to this, 10%. It's underperformed by 10%. Now, obviously, it's not designed to track the S&P 500, but that's pretty substantial underperformance. And I guess I've just been surprised at the uh, follow-through or the carryover from 2022. And then I think the other surprise factor here, which you touched on, is just how many copycat products have launched this year. There are a ton of these cover call ETFs trying to ride the success of JEPI. And I'll be honest, Dave, I I think it's a bubble. I I think a bunch of these are going to close over the next few years, which I guess isn't a success story if that comes to pass. But uh, in any event, JEPI is my first surprise. Any, Any quick comments on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like the story of 2023's market performance in ETFs has been one where we learned lessons about what really awful down markets look like in 22, and we're now implementing that strategy. Because you can go almost in every asset class, the the high performer, the momentum play is not the one gathering assets. And that's a real shift. I mean, Nate, you and I have been doing this a long time. I think if I said to you, hey, here's a fund that's got a three-year track record and it's beating the S&P, we'd both think money would be piling in. 
There are a ton of funds like that right now that are not catching a bid, but stuff like, you know, S&P high quality, uh, right? You know, growth at a reasonable price. Those are still getting the, those kind of bids, as is all of this equity income stuff. Um, this is really mirroring a trend that I think we've seen north of the border in Canada for years, where effectively any equity allocation that's got a vibrant options market, somebody's going to launch a version of it that's got an income stream or maybe a little protection the Canadians have been all over this for years. We're just playing catch up. I would expect to see sector product next. So I'm I'm sort of shocked we haven't seen like 20 or 30 products launched that are all of the various sort of tweaks on sectors and themes, all with an options overlay. It's amazing. Like as I was looking at the list of these equity income products. I'll, I'll give you another one that jumped out at me. The Yield Max Tesla Option Income Strategy ETF, ticker TSLY, that's taken in nearly a billion dollars this year. It launched less than a year ago. Now, performance-wise, if you look at that, it's up like 38 39% versus, again, about 15% on the S&P 500. So the performance is there. But those Yield Max products, I know uh, Curve has these yield premium ETFs. Yep. These do seem to be finding uh, an audience. Well, these are... I think this is part of the overall trend towards, you know, I, I've said this on the show before. I think the future of ETFs is packaged portfolios and packaged trades. What we're talking about here for the most part is packaged trades. The reason somebody's buying the option Tesla strategy is because it's more difficult to roll that yourself than it is to just put your money in the ETF ticker. You just set me up with a perfect segue into my next surprising success story. When you talk about a packaged options trade. So I think you're going to like this one. The Alpha Architect one to three month box ETF. <laughs> you love the box ETF. This yeah. thing launched at the end of 2021. I don't know if you've checked this recently. It now has about 550 million in assets, and most of that has come this year. And and I'll tell you this: look, I don't ever uh, really doubt the Alpha Architect team because you're talking about some of the smartest individuals out there. But understanding box spreads is not exactly easy, and so I was skeptical that they could pull this ETF off just because I thought advisors and investors wouldn't understand the strategy. But I, I think at the end of the day, you know, you look at what this ETF is doing, it's generating a very tax efficient uh, treasury like yield. It's only 19 basis points. That is a pretty darn good recipe for success in the current rate environment. Well, and to, to your point about understand why an advisor is going to make an allocation, BOXX is a classic case where an advisor is going to make an allocation because what you're doing is saying, I'm going to give you this sort of you know short duration exposure, but I'm magically going to transform it into capital gains treatment. Like that's amazing for a financial advisor to be able to lean into that. It's a great product. It's well designed. It's relatively cheap. I'm not surprising it's catching a little bit of a bid. Yeah, that's certainly set up for a really nice longer term success, in my opinion. Okay, my third ETF success story this year. Um, I try to dig a little bit deeper, so I'll be curious to see what you think about this one. I chose the Astoria U.S. Quality Kings ETF, ticker ROE. So this uh, launched in August. It's already over $60 million in assets. And I think the surprise for me is that quality ETFs, that's a pretty crowded space, right, with some huge players like QUAL, the iShares Quality ETF. And so I, I just feel like it's pretty impressive that ROE launched in August. They're already at a viable AUM level. And then I'll add to that, I'm sure you recall that uh, last year, at the very end of 2021, Axis launched PPI, which is the Axis Astoria inflation-sensitive yep. ETF. Astoria is obviously the uh, the portfolio manager on that. Now, that hasn't had a great year, but that's still around $60 million in assets. And so when I was just looking at new launches over the past couple of years, I thought it was noteworthy that Astoria 
has been able to carve out a path uh, here in the ETF space. And if I were them, I would look at riding this momentum to, to see what else they can launch. Because, again, as I know you're aware, Astoria offers model portfolios, which, hey, that's a pretty good distribution model. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I, you, I wouldn't sleep on Astoria. I think that uh, John Davy and the team there do an amazing job. Uh, I think they're a classic case of a handful of smart people who really understand what they're doing, sticking to their knitting, right? I mean, there's a consistency to what Astoria is doing there. Um, it, it Look, things like PPI, they do what they say on the tin. They're not going to work in every market. Um, but that core belief that certain kinds of equity sectors are going to outperform in certain markets and that you need a little bit of a multi-asset class approach to thinking about this, I think it's really smart. I think it really resonates with advisors. I would not be surprised to see ROE uh, pull in significant assets. I'd highlight um, like our um, RBST from uh, Newfound in there as well. That's the that's the 100% bonds, 100% managed futures with you know using the appropriate leverage. Um, those are the kinds of, like I put them in the same category of sticking to your knitting, understanding a core idea and how to implement it well, and knowing that the, there is a market for it and that market will come to you eventually. So I, I, I'm a big fan of these kinds of products. I don't think every investor should just leap into them. There's a level of sophistication that's required to get into some of these products. Um, but I think that that's important and I think it's valuable. Yeah. And again, with Newfound and Astoria, they have that distribution through the model portfolios, which I'm fine if they want to use their own ETFs, as long as everything's properly disclosed, they're not double dipping on fees and those sorts of things. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. They obviously believe in those products, so they should want to use them in their model yep. portfolios. Um, okay, very quickly, let's move over to the failure side. Um, you mentioned LZRD. Uh, I think you mentioned LGM. I mean, anything else you would point out in terms of a surprising uh, failure in ETFs. I know we're both more half glass full type people, so I, I don't want to be too pessimistic. Yeah, I, I mean, there have been a lot of closures this year. Um, so it'd be easy to point fingers at a whole bunch of $4 million funds that aren't around anymore. Um, honestly, I don't want to discourage that. Please, by all means, if you have a terrible $4 million fund, I would like you to close it. I'm sure Nate would as well. It makes everybody's life easier. So I feel like this has been a pretty healthy year uh, in the sense that we have flushed a lot of product that wasn't going to be able to get uh, any, any traction. So uh, I don't think of that as failure so much. I think it is rationalization. Okay, I'll give you two here. So the first one, uh, again, is another one you'll laugh at. It's going to be obvious, which is the Ether Futures ETFs. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, I, I think everyone knows I was pretty bearish on these to begin with. I, I wasn't expecting a ton of demand, but I've been a bit surprised at just how little demand there's actually been. I, I was looking this morning. These things only have about 20 million in assets overall, if you exclude BTF, the Valkyrie, Bitcoin, and Ether ETF, which already had assets in it. And quite frankly, Dave, I think these will all maybe be gone by next spring once the SEC approves spot Ether ETFs, which maybe you disagree. I expect that to happen fairly quickly after they approve spot Bitcoin ETFs, which looks like maybe, you know, January we'll get those. So I, I don't know. Any quick thoughts on Ether Futures ETFs? Uh <sighs> I, I'm not necessarily in the same boat. I, I'm, I'm not sure I agree that we're going to see spot ETH just pile on right after spot Bitcoin. I, I understand the path that, that makes that seem logical, but I think there's more foot dragging to come. Uh, it would not surprise me to see the ETH futures products kick around for a while because they're really useful hedging vehicles for folks that are doing arbitrage in the crypto space. Um, so there's an ecosystem that would really like these to be viable. Uh, and whether that ecosystem is enough to keep them trading uh, is an interesting question. I think at, you know, at $20, $30 million, uh, nobody's making any money on these things. I think you need to add a zero before these become profitable products. Um, 
whether we get there, I don't know. But hey, at least you can get short. <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring that up because I, I guess a, a sort of secondary surprise to this story and uh, something obviously very disappointing to me is I can't believe we have Ether Futures ETFs and inverse Ether Future ETFs before we have a spot Bitcoin ETF. I honestly never would have guessed that'd be the case. And I, I think we'll look back on this in a few years, and we're, and we're all going to laugh at just how ridiculous this entire. I, Nate, I don't. What are you going to move on to? We spent a couple of years worrying about non-transparent active. Now we've been hung on the Bitcoin thing for a couple of years. Like, what's next for you, Nate? You got to find another uh, hill to die on here. I know. I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to be so bored. Okay, let me give you one other uh, surprising failure, and I'm, I'm going to dovetail off your L gem. So I'm going to lump a bunch of unrelated ETFs together. Uh, so. LGM and SGM, the, the Jim Cramer ETFs, the Nightshares ETFs, NSPY yeah. and I, uh, sorry, NIWM, and then the unusual whale subversive Republican and Democratic ETFs, ticker, tickers Cruz and Nancy. So all of these have a lot of buzz around them at launch and, and even before launch. I'm sure you saw I, I, there was a lot of debate and discussion out on Twitter, which I'm not so sure that wasn't at least partially a catalyst for some of these launching. But these have all disappointed. Elgem is now closed. The Nightshares ETFs have closed. The Unusual Whales ETFs have less than $15 million in assets combined. And it wasn't so much that I was expecting uh, a ton of looks from advisors or, or anything like that, but I did think maybe the retail crowd would jump in. Uh, I, I think this is the lessons of 2022 coming back again. Uh, I think I think a lot of individual investors who were willing to make these kind of speculative plays uh, got their you-know-what handed to them in 2022, and they're not super excited to jump back into another meme play. Uh, so, you know, I, I think S-Gym is one of the only ones of the ones you listed that's still surviving, um, and, and it's it's alive. It's got, what, three, four million bucks in it, uh, so it's hard to call that a raging success. It's trailing just being short the S&P uh, by about 4%, so it's, it's basically worse than a just straight-up call against the market. Uh, but it makes for phenomenal Twitter traffic, and Matt Tuttle's a great follow. Uh, if you want to keep track of every little nuance of what Jim said last night, I can't watch Jim Cramer, so I don't get to pay any attention to that. Um, but it's it's an entertaining way to pay attention to the narrative of single stock retail, which is sort of what Jim is. Um, I, I, as an investment, I suspect it's going to hang around for a little while until uh, its performance is just too awful, and then it'll get closed. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, okay, with our remaining time, I actually want to ask you about two other ETF stories that uh, caught my attention recently, and uh, just get your quick take. So the first is the Simplify Market Neutral Equity Long Short ETF. The ticker is EQLS. And I bring this up because it was reported last week that General Electric's pension invested $100 million into this. Yep. If you look, this ETF just launched in July. And, and so my question for you is whether you think these institutional caliber strategies in an ETF wrapper are finally uh, arriving. Because I feel like we've talked about this for a long time on alt ETFs, but the traction overall has been somewhat slow to materialize. Is this a sign that things are changing with products like this? I, I think you can look at the simplify success story and answer that question, yes. I don't even think you have to look at that specific product. Um, EQLS, I think, is a great product. Um, it's one of the only true long-short market-neutral strategies out there. It's got a little patina of machine learning on it, which you know I think is probably useful in the market right now. Uh, it, it is institutional asset bait. The challenge, I think, with these types of products is I get a lot of queries from advisors who are looking at the sort of 
the whole Simplify lineup or some of the other competitors with sort of more interesting derivatives-based product lines, like, like the newfound products, for instance. And the challenge is that a lot of them have patterns of return that the average investor is not used to seeing. Uh, right. So like, you know, the the problem, if you will, with something like an EQLS is that you do. Ne it's never going to outperform in an up equity market. It's always going to be trailing when the S&P is up 15 percent. You're never going to be up 15 percent. That's not how it works. You're going to actually probably be up something like 8 percent or something like that. But you're holding it for the long term to get that negative benefit when the market then whipsaws around and throws you down 25 percent and you only go down two. Um, and so whether or not there's a, a non-institutional market for this tightly derived product, I don't know. Um, but I do think advisors and investors need to be careful looking at these products because they don't always do what you think. I would actually highlight um, CYA from Simplify as the case in point, um, which is just a straight up buying short-term puts on the market. That is a trading tool. And if you put money in that for the long term, you should expect to lose it because that's, you know, over the very long term, just buying puts on the market is a terrible idea. It's a tactical tool. So I think there's that weird distinction. Um, and I do think that we're going to see more of these institutions products. You know, you go back a couple years, we got some of the first systematic equity products were sort of pension fund sponsored, state of Arizona, and I think it was uh, EQUAL, um, QUAL um, from BlackRock. So I think we'll see more of it. That is such a great point, though, with uh, the behavioral side of the equation. We actually talk a lot about this at our firm, where as we look at products, one of the first questions is, is an investor going to be able to stomach this? Are they are they going yeah. to be able to stick with this? And is an advisor, yes, it's our job to educate the end client. And I think we do a good job of that. But if the end client, even if they understand it, if they can't stick with it, then it's not going to matter. And so I think you're right. Like you look at Simplify's lineup, they have some just unbelievable products. I mean, the thought that went into construction, uh, constructing some of these, if you look at the performance track record and, uh, you know, being uncorrelated to the to the broader market, all of those things looks phenomenal. But can the end client stick with it? That's what it comes down to. I think yeah. with something like EQLS and, and, you know, what I was mentioning, GE's pension allocating there, obviously institutional investors, they know what they're getting with this, or I think for the most part they do. So the, the challenge is can you get advisors and, and retail to understand the return patterns here? That's yeah. easier said than done. Exactly. All right. The the other story I want to ask you about quickly here is this Hashdex Bitcoin ETF filing. And I, I yeah. did promise myself we would keep the Bitcoin ETF talk to a minimum. But I, I really want to get your take on this because I think it's a unique filing where Hashdex would buy the underlying Bitcoin. They're also going to get their pricing reference uh, from the, the same regulated market, which is the CME. They're going to use what are called exchange for physical transactions to acquire uh, and dispose of the Bitcoin. And, and again, all of this is done within the CME ecosystem. Um, I should also note that this is a strategy change on an existing ETF, which is DeFi. That currently owns Bitcoin futures. So this filing would allow them to own both futures and, and physical. I thought this was pretty clever, but... It seems like the consensus take is that Hashdex should have thought of this like two years ago. And so yeah. I, I just love your hot take on this. Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at on this as well. Um, it's very clever. And I love clever. I, I mean, I could write a whole article about this. 
um, I, you know, using this feature of futures markets, which is occasionally you take delivery, right? I, I mean, surprising nobody, right? We talked a lot about this when oil went negative and what that meant. But like the one of the functions of the futures market is to actually deliver things. Uh, and so using the futures market as your delivery mechanism, I think is clever. Uh, whether or not they're going to be able to just shove this through, I'm pretty skeptical of. I think, you know, if I was sitting in the SEC's chair, you have to tap dance a little bit because it is an existing product. The existing product is a fully, you know, it's it's basically a commodities pool right now. Uh, this change does require just enough manipulation of what those filings look like for the SEC to have to approve it. So it's not like issuing another ETN on an existing structure. There is an approval that's required. I am extraordinarily skeptical that anybody at the SEC is going to lift a finger to get this thing across the desk. Yeah, I believe the SEC's first decision date on this is actually November 17th. So what is that, the end of next week? So so would you just expect yeah. them to delay? Yeah, I, I think they're going to kick this. They're just going to keep kicking this thing down the road forever. Interesting. And and they don't have to. This is where the, the regulatory side of the equation is a little bit of my Achilles heel. They don't have to provide any sort of commentary on this, because if I look at this filing, I don't know what the rationale would be to uh, to not allow it. And, and so does the SEC not have to yeah. provide any sort of commentary around why they're delaying? Yeah, so it is it is hard to reject. It's hard to they're going to have to jump through. That's why I was saying I think they're going to have to jump through some hoops to kill it. Uh, but there's they absolutely can just delay, delay, delay on this. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they could push this out till well past when we get the launches from the other, you know, 12 spot Bitcoin ETF applications out there on the street. I, however, I do put this sort of in a similar category to GBTC in the sense that this is a filing that while it has its merits for being at the front of the line, it also has hair on it, right? It's not clean. Uh, and because it's not clean, I'm actually more inclined to think that something like a Bitwise or a Valkyrie who have very, very clean, simple filings is, is may get to the front of the line. Eh, who the heck knows? I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little tired of handicapping how that the end state of this is going to go. But I would bet against hashtags getting the getting the starting gun. Yeah, and we can move on. I don't I don't want to belabor the point. I guess I just, and maybe you don't know the full answer to this, but obviously one of the primary reasons the SEC is denied spot Bitcoin ETFs is over concern of fraud and manipulation on these unregulated crypto exchanges. And so if Hashdex is using these exchange for physical transactions on the CME, you know, I would think you're removing that um, concern from from the SEC. And so my question is, do they have to specifically address that? Like if they are going to delay and uh, do they have to provide any commentary around that and say, OK, in your case, the fraud and manipulation on the underlying crypto exchanges isn't relevant here, but here's why uh, we're not going to allow this filing at this time. Frame. So whether or not we ever hear about that is a different question. Uh, whether or not they will give hashtags that information, like in a private meeting, you never you never quite know. I will be surprised if there is a written document that comes out and says, we are delaying this because of X, Y, and Z. They could publish a list of questions that they want hashtags to answer. I think the number one is going to be, okay, so a year from now, you're sitting here in however much percent physical Bitcoin, and you have a major redemption. 
are you confident that you can do this sort of reverse physical transaction for delivery on the CME at volume? Because that's not something that really gets done frequently with this kind of a product. This is a bit novel. Um, and so because they're limiting themselves to a single exchange, I could see the SEC turning around and making that a negative, right? So to your point, maybe they solve some of the surveillance and pricing manipulation issues and they open up another can of worms on liquidity and trading. Yeah, and they do, Hashdex does address that in the uh, prospectus and that if they hit some of those limits where there's a concern that they're, you know, they, they own too much of the underlying, then that's why they'll invest in the futures, uh, yeah, right? And there's like right. a toggle back and forth. But I'm, I'm just fascinated to see what happens here. I think, again, you make a good point in that if the SEC is close to allowing uh, Bitcoin ETFs just in general, why not just allow a quote-unquote cleaner product to come to market, the you know the, the spot Bitcoin ETF filings from somebody like Bitwise or iShares or whoever uh, versus this. So this will be interesting to watch. Dave, just about a minute left before I let you go. I know we're going to talk much more about exchange as that event gets closer to the date, but it is only about three months away. And I just thought with yeah. the upcoming holidays and, and everything else, February 11th will be here before we know it. Are you able to provide us with a, a, a quick teaser on this yet? Like, how's the yeah, planning coming I'm, along? So my my role at Exchange is largely focused on the content and the agenda. Um, and I, I, let's just be honest. This is a big year, right? We've got a major election happening. We've got uh, armed conflict in several places around the world that the U.S. is partially tied up in. Uh, it's a big, hairy year. Uh, I think what you're going to find at Exchange when you start digging into the agenda, and we're going to be announcing more over the next sort of four to six weeks, uh, is we're trying to have some pretty serious conversations. So if you look at some of the folks that we've announced already, um, we've got folks like Amy Walter from the Cook Political Report. Um, I've been working with the Cook Political Report off and on for about 20 years when I've been doing events. It's, it, I think, inarguably the best truly nonpartisan independent analysis of the U.S. political environment. So we've got Amy coming to um, sort of give us that update there. Um, we've got Richard Haas from the Council on Foreign Relations helping kick some of this stuff off uh, to really give us some of that geopolitical perspective. Uh, I think we're going to have some really fascinating conversations. And, and really, I think the, you know, the, the theme for the conference is Blueprint for Growth. I've been thinking a lot about building. And I think the question is, how do you build in a world that feels like sand? And that's the question we're going to try to answer from building portfolios to building an advisory practice. I love it. Uh, the website is exchangeetf.com, correct? Correct. And and are you updating that iteratively, like as you add speakers and the agenda? <laughs> Pretty much continuously. We're, we're right in the hockey stick where uh, for the next couple of weeks here, you're going to see more and more announcements of new speakers, new panel sessions that folks are going to be excited about. Um, we've really leaned into our advisor council um, that's helped us build some of this agenda and make sure, to make sure that what we're putting on stage is what advisors really want to hear. Well, I can't wait for it. Obviously, I'll be on the ground there. So hope a lot of the ETF Prime audience joins me as well. But Dave, always love chatting. This was fun this week. I like this format. Yeah, this is a great format. That was uh, Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify. In today's uncertain, complicated times, diversification is more important than ever. Join Vetify and industry experts for the Alternatives Symposium to learn about the latest diversification strategies. Register for free at etftrend.com slash webcasts slash alternatives dash symposium.
Looking to take advantage of what Warren Buffett calls the American tailwind of prosperity? The Gabelli Financial Services Opportunity ETF is actively managed by McRae Sykes to invest in companies leveraged to long-term secular trends. This thematic approach provides the tax efficiency and real-time trading benefits of ETFs. Visit gabelli.com forward slash funds forward slash ETFs forward slash GABF to learn more. I'm now joined by Tony Bancroft, Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst at Gabelli Funds, who currently offers five ETFs, about $30 million in assets, though, of course, Gabelli is under Gamco Investors, which includes Gabelli Funds and Gamco Asset Management. Altogether, over $30 billion in assets under management. And Tony is the Portfolio Manager on the Gabelli Commercial Aerospace and Defense ETF, ticker symbol GCAD, which just launched earlier this year. And he's now joining me from New York. Tony, it's a, a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nathan. It's great to be uh, great to be speaking with you today. Okay, so we'll obviously get into the Aerospace and Defense ETF in a moment. But I have to start by noting for listeners that you previously served in the United States Marine Corps as an F-A-18 Hornet fighter pilot, which, uh, by the way, thank you for your uh, service. But I'd love to start by hearing a little more about that experience and uh, sort of your path from the Marine Corps to becoming a portfolio manager at Gabelli. That's just not something you see every day. Yeah, well, th- thanks for that, Nathan. It was an honor to serve. And, um, uh, you know, I I, I, uh, I, I loved, uh, you know, I, I, I always said I, I loved uh, I loved it because I loved the mission and the people. And, um uh, you know, I, I started out, I went to uh, the Naval Academy and um, uh, spent four years there doing engineering, systems engineering. And, you know, you, uh, after par- part of part of the agreement to, um, uh, when you when you accept an appointment to the Naval Academy, you um, you are obligated to serve uh, post, post-graduation. And I always knew I wanted to serve. My father was a, um, a lieutenant in Vietnam, a Vietnam vet. Uh, and I had obviously uncle. I had some uncles and, and other relatives that served in, in Vietnam and in the other wars, and um, just always had, had that deep sense of um, you know sort of duty to our country. And so I, after graduation, I was fortunate enough to receive a um, a, marine, a marine aviation billet. Um, but first, you go down to Quantico, Virginia, and spend about six months um, uh, rolling around in the mud. And learning to uh, be a Marine infantry officer, and, and essentially everything that's at the Marine Corps is disposable at the battalion level for for a uh, infantry battalion. Um, and then from there, you um, I had I headed down south to Pensacola, Florida, the uh, cradle of Navy, naval aviation, and learned how to fly. Uh, uh, started learning how to fly as a student naval aviator. Started out in a T-34, and then I uh, was fortunate enough to get um, a jet slot and went to Murray, Mississippi, and from there uh, flew the T-2 Buckeye, an old sort of 1950s-looking uh, uh, twin-engine uh, straight-wing jet, uh, learning the sort of a more tactical aviation, um, uh, you know, higher-speed tactical aviation. And then from there, you sort of graduate to a third aircraft called the T-45 Gossuck, which was our <clears throat> essentially the Navy's 
um, uh, advanced jet trainer and, and learning advanced uh, fighter and, and strike tactics. And then you CQ, you actually go to the boat, the uh, aircraft carrier, and learn how to carrier qualify on, on, that, on that aircraft. And I was fortunate enough to get a, uh, a F-18 slot and went out to Miramar, California, and uh, uh, flew, uh, learned to fly the F-18, and from there deployed uh, on, uh, on the Carl Vinson uh, during opera- um, Operation During Freedom, and we did a, uh, essentially, um, uh, you know, spent about nine months in the Western Pacific and supported um, essentially you know, the, the, the Korean and, and the Western Pacific AOR, <clears throat> and then came back, went to Iraq on the ground uh, and do, doing a um, doing a billet over there for about seven months and then came back again and then went back with my squadron and did a, a um, uh, it's called a, a UDP. Um, it's, a, um, um, it's a deployment where the uh, Marine Corps squadron will, Marine Corps squadron will fly and essentially uh, support um, the West, uh, a, a base in the Western Pacific in Yokuni. Did that for about six or seven months and then came back, was an instructor at my old squadron where I learned to fly the F-18, taught that for about four years. And then, um, you know, I, I knew I was, it was time to get, it was time to get, I just got married and uh, knew that I uh, you know, certainly needed to focus on my family and our, our uh, we had a child on the way. So I decided to get out of active duty and um, um, essentially uh, went back to New York. Uh, my wife was already working in New York and um, uh, was fortunate enough to uh, to be accepted to Columbia Business School and um, uh, fortunate enough to get uh, an opportunity to uh, work for Mero Gabelli at, uh, at Gabelli Funds. And um, uh, here I am now. I, uh, uh, always had that uh, sort of that um, cursory knowledge of of, uh, of, bu- of business and uh, finance, and uh, was fortunate enough to uh, you know work as a as an analyst here and portfolio manager covering aerospace and defense. So that's that's me. That's me in a nutshell. <laughs> All right. So I, I have to ask you now. Be be honest here. As you look back uh, over your time, obviously in the service and then at Gabelli. Which is more difficult, navigating the financial markets or, or, or flying a military aircraft? Uh, <laughs> no, no question, uh, navigating the financial markets is, 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 is uh, much as no one likes a, a night carrier landing or what they, would, they call a night trap, which it, it is a very uncomfortable uh, experience and that really does get normalized. Uh, I, I'd much rather be doing that than trying to survive the uh, uh, these, these financial markets in these times but I, I really enjoy what I do and it's a learning I learn something every day and uh, it's, it's a you know it's a great experience and I've been able to transition well um, from my previous life to this all right so let's get into the uh, ETF again the Gabelli commercial aerospace and defense ETF ticker symbol GCAD uh, why don't you start by explaining your overall approach to this space just in terms of what's going on underneath the uh, hood here Right. And so, you know, we, we um, historically, um, uh, you know, we, we have uh, we look at um, entire sectors. So I, I follow the entire aerospace and defense sector. And, you know, with that, I, um, you know, we essentially are do fundamental analysis, ground up, um, bottoms up investing. And then we, you know, we're top down as well. So we, as, as Mario says, we look at the world through a, a microscope and a telescope and, um, uh, so you know we we have compounded knowledge in, in in certain companies that we've followed for you know almost forty to fifty almost forty plus years, 
and uh, we've we've sort of built the portfolio based on that and where we see uh, opportunities in, in you know in sort of the aerospace and defense uh, industry. And, and and there's really there's you know there's a lot of secular tailwinds going on uh, right now in both uh, sort of sort of two separate but similar biz- same businesses um, with commercial aerospace, sort of commercial general and business aer- uh, aviation, and then uh, the, sort of defense on on the defense and space side. And you're seeing, you know, on the commercial side, you're seeing, uh, you know, the growth in the in the middle class and emerging economies. Essentially, you know, uh, over the next 10 years, 300 million um, uh, people coming into the middle class in in India and China, and you know, those people want to travel, and it's sort of the experiential generation. Uh, people don't want uh, don't want another car. They don't want another. Uh, house, they'd rather go and see the world and and, um, and you know spend their discretionary um, spending that way. And uh, so, how you do that? You get you got to travel, right? That's only sort of one way to get get from A to B. And so, you're seeing the the growth there um, on that side, and that obviously translates to more aircraft, uh, essentially doubling the fleet from somewhere in the 25,000 aircraft currently to almost 50,000, um, you know, by uh, over the next 20 years, so um, you'll, you'll see that growth, uh, you know, along with just traffic uh, traffic growth as well. Uh, that's a growing above um, historic um, global GDP. Uh, so you're, that that's just a secular uh, change that's happening, and there's a lot of structural things within that of just of the um, the essentially the democratization of of, of uh, traffic and air you know air travel. You're seeing uh, countries. Um, you know, essentially opening up their airspace and, uh, uh, you know, allowing more people to fly into it. Uh, obviously, more airports are being built, and um, the low-cost carrier model, of course, has done a huge, uh, has been a huge benefit to uh, commercial travel. So a lot of structural changes there. And then on, on, and on top of that, on the defense piece, um, obviously the world is not a stable uh, uh, place right now, as, as we're seeing in, in Ukraine and Israel. And obviously, the constant threat with uh, China and Taiwan, as well as uh, North Korea, and, and you know, in other um, you know other countries like Iran, um, you know, put, putting pressure on uh, sort of on a global on global peace. So the days of uh, you know the the, the days of the post uh, post fall of the wall and the Soviet Union, um, you know, dissolving uh, that peace dividend, you know, we we believe is is essentially over now and. Um, you know, we're we're having to sort of essentially rearm, arm, arm back up, and uh, you're seeing that with uh, you know global global defense spending. Uh, you know, global defense spending is somewhere around two trillion dollars. About 1.2 trillion of that is NATO spending. Well, the United States, of course, is the is the is by far the the, the mass majority of that, over 800 billion of spending. And you know, and, and we're growing, uh, you know, we're growing at about five percent clip historically. Uh, and that's probably going to have to be somewhere in that Kager uh, going forward. In other countries that have been way behind, on, you know, on the NATO two percent of GDP spend, that that's going to have to change. And it already is starting. You're starting to see that changing in, in countries in Europe. Um, obviously, in Japan, it was not a NATO member, of course, of course but uh, you know, they're a, they're a Asian Pacific partner. And you're seeing increases in, in spending. And uh, to get to that two percent target, that's about almost eighty billion dollars annually of increased uh, of spending just in just in NATO alone. Um, so you, you're, you've got a lot of secular uh, tailwinds, a lot of dynamics. And historically speaking, 
defense spending doesn't really go uh, with political uh, changes. If you know who, who's in the who's in who's in the White House, who's who has Congress, who or who has the Senate, that's historically not uh, accurate to what's changed uh, defense spending. Really, it is is global uh, instability. Um, you know, ge- geopolitical volatility is really what's driven that. Uh, and then on both sides, of course, and the the the, the, uh, the downcome of that of, of you know after a post World War II, of course, obviously defense spending dropped as well as Korea, you know, Vietnam, and then um, you know the Gulf War and global war on terrorism. So right now you're seeing that going on the upswing. You're seeing a lot of volatility, and there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of trepidation right now. So I think that's sort of where we are right now with the fund and. Uh, why? Why we like? Why we started the fund, and you know why we uh, sort of like the industry. Tony, just high level with the ETF itself. If I'm an everyday investor or advisor out there, how is GCAD going to compare to some of the popular index-based ETFs in the aerospace and defense? Right. Sector? So we we are actively managed. Um, so obviously, I I look at the portfolio, and um, I, I you know I sort of I pick the stocks that uh, which which I think are going to outperform uh, based on our on our research uh so that's step one and then step two it's semi-transparent uh using the presidian um uh the presidian um uh, uh model where essentially we have a uh you know uh we have the, essentially the mechanics of how the presidian model work allow the uh gabelli to maintain his proprietary strategy um and you know not essentially protecting that from uh some someone just going in and just you know, downloading what the what the buys and sells are in the fund, like a, a normal sort of a transparent um, index index ETF. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I did see that this is using the Presidian Active Share structure. What? Why do you think that's important? Well, I think you know, I think listen, we're you know, we're we we look at ourselves as um, you know, we we have a, a you know, quote unquote, a secret sauce, and we uh, we have a model that we think uh, we think works. And you know why would you just want to uh, just sort of give that away and allow everyone just to essentially like most in the index ETFs you know that are um, uh, out there you could just go and essentially download um, you know what what their what their what the buys and sells are so uh, essentially the, and it's probably a little too uh, convoluted to get into but essentially the mechanics of the Presidian model allow. Uh, allow the um, the fund to maintain its you know proprietary essentially you know its proprietary strategy or its its secret sauce similar more similar to a a mutual fund which you know does quarterly uh, 13, 13 Fs. Just a few minutes left here. I thought you did an early or an excellent job uh, earlier, just laying out some of the potential investment drivers. You, you talked about obviously everything going on geopolitically now. You talked about the democratization of, of air travel and just the uh, the increasing need for for uh, air travel, especially in some of these emerging market uh, countries. But if we go back to your military experience, I know this may seem a little bit obvious, but I would love to have you talk more about how that has informed your portfolio management views, for, right, when we're talking about sure. investing in this particular space. Right. And, you know, that's a, you know, that's a great point, Nathan. And, and I'm, sometimes maybe I just sort of uh, uh, glaze over that and, and don't think about it, but it's so intuitive to me. Uh, you know, I go visit, um, for example, I went and visited a company that we own, a company called Command, um, a few months ago with, with Mario and another teammate. And we go and they we go to their headquarters, which is also where their manufacturing facility is, and we look at their um, uh, some of their products that they have, and, and they uh, they do these 
they essentially uh, self-lube uh, bearings. And these self-lube bearings are essentially a proprietary uh, engineered product that they make, and they're, you know, they're essentially on every part of, of most aircraft. They're, they're, uh, they, they essentially allow the, a, a wearing, uh, like, a, like a landing gear, for example, that opens a landing gear door. It uses a, a little lever, and it, it pushes against the landing gear door, and they, to, to have that, that, that uh, piece in between so it doesn't wear down the door, there's this, there's this self-loop bearing that goes there. And I remember seeing these on my aircraft, you know, uh, for, for, for years. You'd go and you have to do your pre-flight inspection, and there they are. The command, you know, self-loop bearings are on the plane that I, that I flew. And, and that happens, I mean, every, I, you know, we, uh, one of the things, you know, obviously we, we do it, believe at Gabelli is to go, you know, visit, kick the tires and, and visit the companies and, and you know, and, and go and see how, these, how, how their plants work and, and talk to the management and you, I, I can't tell you. I probably see. I probably see ten parts uh, every time I go visit an aerospace and defense company of something that I've actually flown, hmm. um, you know, and, and used on the jet, specifically on the jet that I flew. So it's it, it really. I think it adds value to understand the um, the complexity of these components and just the you know the, the skill set these companies have. Um, of 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 designing and manufacturing and, and then supporting these you know uh, servicing these these components and you really see the true value and um, you know what what goes into uh, what goes into building a, an aircraft or, or any kind of uh, aerospace and, and defense uh, type type of you know system. Well, Tony, with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Greatly enjoyed the uh, conversation. Really loved hearing your backstory uh, in, in particular. Certainly wish you the best of luck on uh, GCAD moving forward. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks so much, Nathan. That was great. Great speaking with you, and uh, hopefully I can be back and we'll talk some more. That was Tony Bancroft, Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst at Gabelli Funds. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Tema ETFs, if you would like to learn more about the CANC Oncology Fund, you can visit temaetfs.com slash CANC. Next week, I'm just telling you, you're not going to want to miss this. I am going to go around the entire world of ETFs with none other than Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas. It should be great. Until then, have a great week, everyone.